Welcome to A Learner's Journey. My name is Molly Sanders, and the goal of this podcast is to inspire and motivate you by connecting you with a variety of passionate horsewomen and men who have dedicated their lives to helping horses and their people. I'm grateful you're here. Welcome. I'm really excited that you're joining in on this conversation, and I'd like to start off by wishing you and all your loved ones a happy new year. For those of you who are not familiar with Amy Skinner, I wanna share a little bit about her with you. Amy is a student of the horse. She's dedicated her life to understanding these majestic creatures and strives to be the best she can be for them. She teaches students at her home in North Carolina, and she also travels all over the states, bringing her knowledge to horse lovers from all different disciplines. I first learned about Amy through Facebook, through people that I knew sharing her posts, and then I'd look into them, and her posts really drew me in. She has a fabulous Facebook page, which if you haven't followed it, I would highly recommend that you do. She brings up topics that are important to all horse lovers, and she does it in a way that's thought-provoking and engaging. I think you'll really enjoy them. Then I found out that she'd written a book, I ordered the book, I loved it, and I reached out to her and asked her if she'd be willing to join me on this podcast. She said yes, and you're just about to hear what happened next. We had a really fun conversation. I'd never met Amy before, and within minutes, I felt like I'd known her for a while. We talked about a wide range of topics. She shares an inspiring definition of softness, We get to hear about some of her adventures in a military riding school in Venezuela and a whole lot more. I know you're gonna enjoy this conversation, so I'm gonna stop talking and we'll get to it. Hi, Amy. I've been really looking forward to talking to you, so I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, So one of the questions that I've been asking everyone that I've talked to so far is to share a little bit about how you got started with horses. So I'm going to ask you that too. How'd you get started with horses? Well, I was one of those obnoxious little kids that was like, horsey, you know, every time we passed a horse. And um, I don't know why I was so obsessed with them, but I was because we were not an animal family. We didn't have any pets. And we lived in an apartment um, and I just begged until I got riding lessons. And um, I started riding at a military riding school in Venezuela because my dad was Air Force. Okay. So we lived in Venezuela and it was hardcore, super strict. I I have never been to a military riding school and I I don't think I've really ever heard about them. I mean, I can kind of picture in my mind. Yeah. Make up stories. But what what was that? Like, what was that like? Um, so it was basically like a club and they had, um, they had all of the different sports, like there were, um, swimming and horseback riding and all of the, what have yous. And they had instructors there that would teach it. And so it was taught to the, um, style of military riding, like the cavalry. So it's incredibly strict. Um, and there was, you know, lots of rules for what you could do before moving on to the next step. So I, you know, had to lunge without reins and without stirrups before I could earn my stirrups. And we had to jump with no arms before I could compete. And, um, there was one, (laughs) 
one of my most memorable ones was having to disassemble your tack while riding on a lunge line. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so now I take off my girth and I would take off the sap and then the pad all while cantering on the lunge. <laughs> oh my gosh. What, what would the purpose of, of that be? Why would they have you do that? Do you know? Disassembling your tack? Yeah. I honestly think that the military just promotes as much suffering as possible to build character. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That is so I think great. it's just to test your knowledge of the tack and your ability to ride without reliance on it and to okay. be multitasking in the saddle so that your hands and legs could do something separate. Okay. My, that's my best guess. I, honestly, right. it's probably just to separate the boys from the men, right. so to right. speak. Right. And have you, is there anything that you learned during that time that you have taken into what you do now? Like, do you ever like challenge people to do certain things like that? Just for like what you said, what you, what you shared about it, that it would be uh, a challenge of you to get to know the tack and for you to be able yeah. to have independent hands. Would, have, have you done anything from those days or have uh, you left it all behind? Um, you know, I, I am really big on people learning to ride without their reins. For Like when I had beginners, uh, they all had to ride without their hands before they could earn their reins and same with their stirrups. But as far as flipping off the saddle and disassembling, I have not kept that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's always, there's always the future. Maybe someday I'll have yeah. some like hardcore riding school for, right. you know, women and men only, no girls or boys. <laughs> <laughs> or you might be a girl or a boy when you start, but. When yeah, you, you turn you, into one. Yeah, right. Honestly, I don't know that I could even do that anymore. <laughs> I don't know. Right. Well, and I think about times that um, I, like I went to horse camp when I was a kid and we had to take the bridle apart and put it back yeah. together and that kind of thing. But we were all sitting on benches. You know, we weren't right. like riding on a horse. Right. That would add a, an element of challenge to it. So yeah, that's really cool. So uh, um, along the line, like when did you decide that you were going to do it professionally? Oh, I knew I wanted to do it uh, since I started riding. I would watch my instructor teach and I'd be like, that's who I want to be when I grow up. Um, I wanted to teach riding lessons. I wanted to train horses. That's what I, I always wanted to be, although for a while I wanted to be a jockey. And then I realized that I was way too heavy by like 12 uh -huh. years old. So <laughs> uh -huh. that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, yeah. So I want to talk about um, the book that I got from you. Um, and I just learned in talking to you that this was your first book, but you've actually written another one that is available. So I'm going to have to order that one too. I, I loved this book. So this one is To Catch a Horse, Finding the Heart of Your Horsemanship. For those people watching, they can see it. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things I loved about it um, is that you used all of these terms that are commonly um, thrown around in the horse world, balance, softness. Um, those are the two that are coming to my mind, but there are a lot more feel. Mm -hmm. um, and you... I, I feel like oftentimes those terms are shared or said, but they're not mm -hmm. defined. And, yeah. and everyone has a little bit of a different definition of it. Right. And so sometimes we can get into um, confusion because we don't understand each other's definition. And yeah. one of the things I really appreciated is that I, I feel like I have a clear understanding of your definitions of those things, at least when you wrote this, like you said, you've written the yeah. second one. So you're, you know, you've discovered all sorts of new things. Um, but one of the things that I really appreciated was how you talked about softness. 
Mm-hmm. And I would love for you to share a little bit about that. Um, like, what does that, what does softness mean to you? It's something that you're striving for all mm-hmm. the time. What is it? Well, when I wrote that book, softness meant something different than it means to me now. Ooh, so that's this is great. So amazing. Yeah. Because what I thought of as soft back then, I look back on those horses and I like, I feel like I need to apologize to my clients and my horses because that wasn't at all what I was strive for. Well, it was, it's, I'm striving for something better now, I think, but I just didn't know it existed back then. So when I think of softness uh, with a horse, I'm thinking of their, their whole being just being like melted putty, you know, it's not, um, it's not just simply like the horse didn't weigh anything to my rein or my leg. It's that the entire being of the horse is invested in the thing that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote that book, I thought of softness as, you know, non-heavy response that me and the horse were connected by that they were weightless in their execution of a, of a movement. Um, but there's another element to it now that I'm coming to understand, which is just that the horse is so invested in it because it makes them feel good. Not just because, they're light and they're, they're soft in how they're doing it and that they feel good to my hand. Mm-hmm. I, I want it to feel good to the horse's whole spirit now. Right. right. And I just, I hadn't seen that before. So I knew I wanted the horse to feel good, but the way that I'm seeing horses look now, I just hadn't, I didn't even know that was possible. That's really cool. Um, and I, I mean, I think that what I'm hearing you say is that it's not so much that your definition has necessarily changed. Well, it has, but mm-hmm. it's like the foundational understanding yeah. is the same, but the depth of what you're discovering now um, and yeah. what's possible has, has changed. And hopefully that will for the rest of your life, right? If you're, I if hope you're, so. If you're striving for that, there, there isn't, um, there isn't a destination to reach. Yeah. Right. Um, so I hope to be embarrassed by my previous work for the rest of my life. <laughs> right. right. Um, which, yeah, that's, I, I mean, I just think that that is, I, I, I'm fascinated talking to people that are striving for excellence in horsemanship, mm-hmm. but then outside of it, like my brother's an amazing artist. My husband's a musician and cool. I find it really interesting how many parallels there are for yeah. one that's, that's, that's got that, that drive and they're, you know, they want to keep growing. They look back like, you know, my brother talks about that. He'll look back at something yeah. he, he drew. Um, yeah. and a, like a year ago and he can't believe that he did it, yeah. Yeah. but other people look at it and it's like, it's amazing. It's beautiful. And that's the way I feel about you. And I'm sure like people that learn with you feel that way that like what you wrote in this book is so, um, it's so, it's kind of timeless. Like one of the, oh, the other things, one of the other things I really thought about this book, like I read it pretty quickly um, and it's not sequential. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I thought that this is the kind of book that you can pick up, you know, after you've read it, you can pick it up and open it anywhere and find something that you need to hear. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it's, uh, it's just, it's really great. It's like little snippets of, of, wisdom and, and a lot of it, you're asking questions and you're, you know, so Mm -hmm. I don't, I think that you'll probably look back on it and hopefully not be completely, you know, embarrassed. Um, I I still am proud of the book. It's just that I, 
people, it's funny because when you write a book, it's like, there's a piece of you out there, you know, right. people have got me in their homes and on their toilets and right. under their beds. <laughs> like yeah. people have got pieces of me all over the place. And it's fascinating because I meet people who I've never met before who feel like they know me because they've written, read my book and right. in a way that they, they do. But now I'm like, okay, now I have to read my new book because right. that's old me. Right. And you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that is, that's a really interesting thing with, with books, especially I've never written one, but I, and I yeah. hadn't really ever thought about that, that, you know, for you as the writer, it is a, it's a time in your life. Um, yes. And it is very humbling because it is all of my experiences and vulnerabilities and thoughts and questions open to the whole world um, to see, you know, like who you are as a person. So, right. Right. And I actually, I was curious about, cause um, I discovered you through Facebook um, mm-hmm. and you're quite prolific in posting on Facebook. And I really admire that. It's something that I haven't been brave enough to do. Like I I'll post oh, yeah. small private areas, um, but out in the, you know, the wild of, the public Facebook world. Um, and I really, I appreciate that when other people do it. And, um, and I've wondered um, about that. Like, I, I think that you've shared that you're quite introverted. Oh yeah. Very. Yeah. It has that been challenging for you? Like when, yes, was, was there a time <laughs> you decided to go public and be out there and, or did it just start happening organically well, there's two really weird opposing sides to me. The first side of me is that I want peace and quiet. I don't want anyone to bother me. I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want any interruption to my day. I just want to ride horses, feel good, and go home at the end of the day. Uh-huh. And then there's this horrible, nagging, super stubborn part of me that insists on saying stuff all the time mm-hmm. and, and see, looks around and sees what you know isn't going well and what is going well and just can't shut up. <laughs> and so there's like this huge fight between those two parts because I dread confrontation. I dread public, um, like on Facebook, Facebook is a perfect place for people to come out and criticize you. And I right. dread that. I dread confrontation and I dread even something like somebody saying, Hey, I don't agree. It makes me really anxious. And it's something I've been working on for a straight decade and I'm much better at it now, but it is very difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And so you would think that I would just hide and live my little introvert life, but I just, I can't, I don't know what it is. There's this drive to go out and change what I don't like. Right. And they're always in this battle with each other and neither one of them is ever going to win. <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I, I can appreciate that that would be challenging to be, yeah. to be you like to be in that, that battle. But I am so thankful that you have that side of you because the things that you're bringing up, I think are, and the way you're doing it, I think really invites thoughtfulness. Oh, I've always been that way. And my, my poor parents have suffered me because I've always gone after the most hard topics and I've always had an eye for injustice or <laughs> discomfort, you know, uncomfortable topics. And I've always, I've always had to bring them up right. and make everyone around me uncomfortable. <laughs> right. Right. It's so interesting. And cause I, I have that in me as well. I mean, I think um, that my whole family would be like, Oh my gosh, it sounds like you're talking about me, but yeah. I, there's still something that keeps me from mm. going out there and being public. So I just, I guess I feel like I'm just glad. I'm so grateful that you're doing that. And, 
Um, and again, you're not out there like starting fights or anything. The things that you're sharing are so they're meaningful and they're thoughtful and they, they get mm-hmm. thinking about their horsemanship. And I feel like the way that you deal with conflict is really respectful too. So keep, keep going. I really, appreciate oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I try, those are moments where I have to really try hard to keep my ego in check and not think like they're attacking me. Right. Um, I have to really understand how they feel defensive and why they feel that way. And basically talk them off the ledge and say, like, right. I am not attacking you as a person. Right. I just want to bring this issue to light. And really, that's been the curse of my entire life is I've been making people angry and defensive since I was little. <laughs> so you're an expert at it. <laughs> I'm starting to get better at presenting things in a way that eases some people's defensiveness a little bit and yeah. gets them thinking. And I try to share my own experience as much as possible. So I don't sound like I'm just wagging my finger at everyone. You don't, yeah, I, yeah. you don't sound like that at all. I, I feel like you do a really great job of that. This is my story. This is my experience. And this is my opinion. Like you do lay yeah. it out there, but it's, it's really, um, I just admire how you do it. So, um, well, your, thank you. your I, practice is paying off. Thank you. I try to remember that for every one hateful comment that I get, there's like 20 to a hundred probably that are good. And it's just human nature to latch onto the one and be like, nobody likes me. Oh, totally. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And same yeah. with, with, you know, the other thing that I really like about, um, your posts and then your book is that, when I don't know, I feel like when you're as immersed or in love with horses as as you are, as I am, as as countless people that follow you are, um, you can't separate it from mm-hmm. life, right? It's no everywhere. You think about it constantly. Um, and I really I appreciate that part of what you're doing as well, because I think that you're um you're you're sharing things that are helpful for how to live your life too mm-hmm. with through, through the horse piece of it. Um, you know, it's really fascinating that you say that because I can like, I separate my life into like chunks mm-hmm. of time where the way that my life was going and the way that my horsemanship was going and, and my riding and the way that my horses and I interacted at those times are so, especially in hindsight, so obviously connected Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there's like a yucky era, a slightly better era, you know, this is way better than before. Now things are going downhill, you know, and it's always sort of like this tunnel that you get sucked into by the events in your life yeah, and how you react to those events and what that does to your writing. And yes, that's so fascinating. It is. It is fascinating. And that was one of the things actually in that, um, in the section where you talked about softness is you, t- I think that's in that section where you talked a little bit about how um, you can't be, you can't separate the time that you're with your horse. Like you can't go, okay, I'm going to be like this with my horse, but then I'm going to leave the arena and, you know, not practice that yeah. um, observation and the thoughtfulness and the feel and the timing. And um, I thought that was really great too. Um, yeah, so- I have, oh, oh sorry, ahead. I can, I can talk. I sometimes get excited. I just have this memory of Brent Gratt. We went to dinner. It was the um, young horse handling class in at his place in Texas. And we all went out to dinner. And Brent is like, if you feel, you watch him work with a horse and it's like, how can anyone be so smooth? How can anyone do something that quickly without disrupting the horse in any way mentally? Like he's very efficient. 
mm-hmm. while being super soft. Whereas I have to be really slow to be soft because I know my temperament gets wound up if I right. go too fast. And right. he can, I wouldn't say he moves quickly, but he gets things done very efficiently mm-hmm. with just this utter softness, everything. And I remember being at dinner and watching him like pick up the salt and salt his french fries. And it was just like, I've never seen a man handle a salt shaker with so much care, you know, just Same. like everything that he touches. And I, I just remember watching him and thinking like, it's everywhere in his life. It's how he lives. It's not right. like, that's so cool. It was crazy. Yeah. I remember, um, Oh, quite a few years ago. I, one of the things that's been hard for me over the years is to slow down and to be more mindful of my movements and my energy. Mm-hmm. And cause I can be, quite fractious and all over the place. And um, Mm -hmm. the person that I was working with at the time said, you need to be practicing this everywhere. Like how slowly and thoughtfully can you pick up your spoon Mm -hmm. and how slowly can you walk across the floor? Um, So it's interesting, just that idea that they, they, you're practicing your horsemanship or you have the opportunity to practice your horsemanship everywhere. Yes. Um, So I have another question about softness. Okay. So I think that um, a lot of times, myself included, when I have been thinking about softness, I think about um, or I become uh, like oatmeal. Like um, there's no boundaries. It's mm. yes to everything, um, and also I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to upset my horse. I want to keep it quiet. Right. Can you talk a little bit about how that's not what it is? (laughs) (laughs) This is a fabulous topic. And uh, like I was just saying, you know how pieces of your life and your horsemanship turn into this chunk of uh, all the same thing. Um, Boundaries are something that I have struggled with through the entirety of my life. Um, And, uh, you know, I've been that person for most of my life where I'm too soft with everything. I say yes to everything and um, don't want to upset anybody. And, you know, I don't know. I can't speak for anyone else, but when it comes down to the root of it, there's a part of me that wants everyone to think I'm a nice person, Yes, you know, and there's kind of some ego in there where like, you know, if I am oatmeal to everyone around me, then they'll see me as a nice person. And then at least that's something I can latch onto, you know? Um. But I started to watch my mentors and how they handled students, which and I saw them handle horses. And I, I, I understood what I thought I understood what I was seeing, which is that they had really good boundaries. And that's where they were able to be really soft because the horses very quickly learned where, where was acceptable to be and where wasn't acceptable to be. And the horses softened and, and looked so much more noticeably relaxed. Mm-hmm. But I watched the way that they teach students because that's where I had the biggest trouble is people who pushed on them or were rude to them or were, you know, you didn't pay attention or didn't work very hard. Cause that was always a struggle for me is, you know, why would you pay me money and not want to work? work? Why would you pay me money and not want me to teach you? Why would you talk over me? Why would you, you know, that just always blew my mind, but I watched the way that they handled these people. And sometimes it was so soft. And other times there was this real firmness to it. Like I've seen a couple people be kicked out of a clinic and it was for a very good reason. It was mm-hmm. like, you know, if you're heckling other people, but they never got emotional about it. There was never emotion or yelling or anything. And it was like, you know, if you can't be nice, you have to leave. Right. And then right back to work with all of us. And it was right. like, just so inspiring because I have the utmost trust in those teachers now, because I know 
not only are they going to attend to me as a student and teach me, but they're going to take care of me. That if there's somebody in this clinic who is heckling everybody, they're not going to be allowed to be here because my, my security matters to that teacher. Right. And that was so a big of a light bulb, because if you have no boundaries with your horse, the horse can never fully trust you because they need to know that you're aware of their body and your body and that you have things taken care of. Right. Whereas if you're constantly letting the horse run all over you, it's not like you're being nice to the horse. You're telling the horse that you have no idea what to do. There's no structure for them to follow. There's no, and there is such a fine line because you don't need to like be the evil overlord of that horse where you never let them, you know, like sometimes when I teach people, they get to where they're like, I didn't tell you to look at that. Pay attention to me. You know, uh-huh. and that's the extreme where it's like, whoa, there, you know, mm-hmm. he's allowed to look at something. Right. Um, but other times people get to where the horse is just walking all over the place. And that horse is very insecure because they feel so needing of direction. And that's why when people talk about like the magic that some good horseman possesses where they take the lead rope and the horse just settles. Right the horse is picking up on the fact that the person knows what the horse needs and is about to do it. Right. It's not this like magical mystical thing. It's just the horse is like, somebody please direct me in some capacity that I can latch onto. Right. Whereas if you don't have boundaries of any kind or any structure, there's no ability to be in the middle. And I always teach people that softness centering being in the center is being in between, you know, four boundaries of a box. Mm -hmm. So if you know, where the corners are, then you can find the center. But if it's just wide open, it's really hard for a horse to settle and become centered. Right. Right. That's really, that's so good. There's so much in there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think about like, I've also struggled with setting boundaries and Mm -hmm. I used to teach elementary school um, many years ago. And that was one of the things that was really hard for me to learn was how can Mm -hmm. I set up these boundaries with these kids um, so that we can actually have a productive classroom. And, um, yeah. and when I didn't have boundaries and in, in horsemanship, when I didn't um, there was more emotion there, there was yes. more reactivity. Yes, on exactly. My part, right. Yes. And I think that, like that maybe that goes into what you're saying with that center. Yes. Okay. Um, so if a person has no boundaries, they're reacting to the horse's behavior constantly. Right. I didn't tell you to look at that. I didn't want you ahead of me. I didn't want you here. So the horse is bouncing off of the walls, basically. And the person's like, no, 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 no. Right. You know, whereas like in my life, like I would, I would not set good parameters for how a client should treat me and -hmm. interact with me. So then they would not pay me. And I would text them be like, you owe me money. And they'd be like, Mm -hmm. no, I don't, you know, and then it would be this thing. Right. Whereas like that's poor boundary keeping on my part. And I wasn't aware of that. So I was, you know, resentful and emotional and not probably not great to work with because mm-hmm. I didn't set good boundaries. So now good boundaries to me in that instance looks like sending people a contract with a list of expectations and right. all of that stuff. So going into it, right. everybody knows what their role is. And then if there's something that needs maintaining, I maintain it. And the, that's just an example, but the same with the horse. When you pick up the lead rope, what does this lead rope mean? Where are you supposed to be? How do we relate together? And you don't wait for them to go 180 degrees the wrong way before you be like, no, I didn't tell you to do that. Right. Right. So would you say like, when you're thinking about like that example, when you pick up the lead rope, would, would the boundaries look like that you've got, you've got a clear plan? Mm -hmm. Do, Do you feel like those go hand in hand? Like having, having an idea of, um, of what you're wanting the horse to do, it pr- provides the provides the box. 
Yeah, there's there's some I think of it like this. There's some philosophies that are non-negotiable and the mm-hmm. application of them is fairly flexible. So I do have an idea of how I want the horse to operate on the lead rope when I pick mm-hmm. one up. But if it's a clinic horse who doesn't lead well, I'm going to pick up the lead rope and kind of blend in from where they are and guide them to where I'd like them to be. Right. I don't just pick up the lead rope and be like, oh, no, no, no. You only lead like this right. because they're coming from this perspective and I'm coming from this perspective and it might be quite a shock for them. Yeah. It wouldn't be fair for them to suddenly think that they shouldn't drag on the lead rope or run me over if that's their daily experience with their person. Right. But right. However, I will start to, I'll start to blend in from what I think they can do right now and start to introduce the idea that this lead rope has a meaning and here is its meaning. Right. Right. So you have a clear, you have a clear picture of where you're heading, like the finished product. Yes. But if yes. a horse is way far from that picture, you're not going to just yes. go, okay, you're here today. It's going to yeah, take no. bits and pieces and, um, to, to get yes. to this place. Um, okay. I, I'm always thinking of the finished picture in mind. What do I want this? Where do I want this leading to go? And even further than that, how does this leading piece together with the riding that I hope to get to? And not just today's riding, but like, say, I want to build a finished horse. However, if I'm picking up the lead rope and the horse is like on a scale of zero to 10, negative five, we're going to start with where he's at and start to understand why this matters instead of just going and embossing him around. Yeah, that's really, that's really good. So um, one of the things I wondered is like, you've spent quite a few years, um, you know, developing your own horsemanship, which will be forever, um, mm-hmm. but also helping students with their own journey um, and, and learning and teaching. And that's another thing I appreciate in the book is you talk a lot about learning and creating a safe space and what does it mm-hmm. mean to be a, a great learner? Um, so what are some things that in your experience you've watched students um, struggle with or run up against in their journey that um, has been kind of a common theme that, that you might be able to share something to help with? Uh, I think a big one that's kind of big right now, though, is people dabbling in different you know, clinic going has become very popular, which is fantastic in so many ways. But in some ways, it's kind of harmful because you have people going, every clinician who comes to town and more, and they're doing every online class and they're trying to connect all of these things that don't connect and bouncing back and forth. Um, and so they do a little here, a little there, and they are putting in a lot of work. It's not that they aren't doing the work. It's that they're basic. The basics of each of those types of work is different. So they get from like zero to one, go to this person, they go to zero to one. And then each new person they ride with is going to want to get their basics the way they like them. Right. So these poor horses are constantly just, being told that everything you know is wrong, we've got to start all over again and they never get anywhere. And Mm -hmm. they end up creating, I think a very confused piecemeal type of horse. And, you know, I run into a lot of, of backlash when I say this, because people often get a little defensive because they're like, well, you need to take what's good from people and, you know, leave out the rest. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true, except that if you don't have a good picture of the whole you're not going to be able to take the good and leave the rest because you're going to take whatever is given to you, make a big slushy mess of it and go on to the next person. So as you have a better picture of what the finished picture that you want looks like, Mm -hmm. then you can start to connect those pieces. But I think beforehand, 
it's better if you just find something that speaks to you and makes you feel good and that your horse says feels good for him and, and stick to that route. Like, especially with what I do, they've never even heard of it, let alone they're not going to understand it in the first lesson. And for some of them, it might be so puzzling that it takes a good three to six months to start to make. So you need to put in the time to where it starts to click and show the results before you make a decision about whether it's good work or bad work. And it's not that I, I don't think the work that I do really takes that long. It's that people have habits that are opposed to the way that they need to be to start doing what we do. Right. So it takes a long time to convince people that you need to let go of that habit. It is Mm -hmm. interrupting your ability to progress Mm -hmm. Um, and starting to teach them the beginnings of posture and movement is like a whole world that a lot of people have never thought of. So it's quite different from the average training, which is just like, here's a technique to make them stop bucking. Here's a technique to make them stop jigging on the trail. Right. So here's a question. I don't know, you know, I don't know if it has an answer. Well, it does have an answer, but this might be hard, a challenging one to answer. It might not be, you might be like, oh my gosh, ding, ding, ding. (laughs) But I think that, um, you know, I early on in my journey, I got involved in a program and I knew I needed that um, Mm -hmm. because I, I didn't want to go you know, piecemeal it all together. Mm-hmm. And, but if, if someone like, if someone is, you know, living out in the middle of Michigan um, and maybe they don't have access to someone like you, where, where do you live by the way? I live in North Carolina. I'm in okay. Richmond. Okay. Okay. I had you somewhere else. Um, <laughs> so they, you know, maybe don't have access to someone that they can study with and really delve in. Um, how, how does somebody know when they're ready to go and, you know, study with a variety of different people? Cause I feel like once you have a foundation, you can do that and you've got mm-hmm. something to, you've got a, a core piece that you can mm-hmm. kind of put those things onto or not. But do you, do you know what I'm saying? Am I, I think so. Sense? Yeah. Okay. I think the, I think the best plan is to go audit clinics and watch before you participate and, Try to remove the appeal of the instructor or non-appeal of the instructor. And what I mean by that is people tend to uh, glorify or sort of villainize or think nothing of instructors based on a lot of exterior things that aren't always very accurate to their ability. Mm -hmm. So like say somebody has a really good reputation for like they're a big guru person. Right. So you're going to go to that clinic and kind of put blinders on to maybe what is actually going on there. And like, for example, I went to a clinic and the clinician like flips this horse over and it was to me, but everyone around was like, that horse really needed that. You know, that guy really knows what he's doing. And and any questioning allowed was like not allowed because this is the man, you know, so Mm -hmm. people will put on the blinders. Mm -hmm. So if you can go to a clinic and watch with like a, just as much openness as you possibly can muster you know, pretend that you can't, you don't know who that person is and just watch the way that they treat the students and watch the way that the horses look and change in expression and behavior and movement uh, and make your decisions from there. Because there's, there's a lot of really good horse and women out there who I disagree with in theory, but mm-hmm. when I watch them teach, all I see is good things happening. You mm-hmm. know, I disagree with the I mean, maybe you're French classical and I'm German classical, or maybe you like are a Texas cowboy and somebody else is Montana cowboy. Like there's, right. 
differences that maybe I wouldn't do myself at home, but if I were recommending them to somebody, I would say, absolutely. That mm-hmm. person puts great care into the horsemanship and the way that they teach people and the way that they treat people. And if somebody wants to work with that person and me, I'll try to find a way to blend the two together in a way that works mm-hmm. if I can, right. you know, but um, in, in an ideal world, if I understood you correctly, um, what you're saying is if, if someone can find someone that they relate to, that they they've gone and watched them, it's speaking mm-hmm. to them, go and spend time with them. Like, yeah, you know, put in the time and when, like, what would, uh, I don't know if this is a hard question. Um, what, when would it be time to go and like, what are, when do you know when you have the the foundation to then go and study with a variety of people? Well, I'm a terrible person to ask that question because I've learned what I've learned through making every mistake possible. Right. <laughs> so right. I'm a deep end of the pool with no floaties kind of a person. Okay. I mean, I just jump out there and learn in retrospect from all the mistakes that I've done. And I realize that everyone is different. Right. Um, and a lot of the way that I teach is like, don't do what I did. It was a mess. Right. Right. <laughs> so I don't, I guess I don't know. That's a really personal decision of when you feel ready. And I think if you start to feel like things are kind of suffering and getting messy again, it's maybe retreat and stick to one thing that, you know, works for a little bit. Right. right. I mean, that's kind of a messy question because it is. There's the way that I do things, but the way that I do things is I think of it as a spoke on a wheel. You know, there's Mm -hmm. multiple paths to good work. And, you know, I, I tend to think that anything honors the horse's mind, body, and spirit is good. Mm -hmm. Right. It maybe will lead to a different type of work, Mm -hmm. but um, anything that that's, that's what I would need to be a prerequisite because anything that made a horse feel worse or a student feel worse would not be on my radar. Right. Right. Yeah. That's, that's good. Um, so, um, one thing that I've felt like for many, many years is the importance of our attitude and that attitude is like 99% of the, of the whole, uh, kit and caboodle. Um, and that, you know, sometimes like, like the example you gave of folks that go to, it's almost like they're collecting, um, Mm -hmm stamps from different uh, yes. <laughs> clinicians or like a passport, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that they're, they're looking, they're searching for the technique that's mm-hmm. going to solve all of the problems. Right. And yeah. um, I think that often um, it's, it's what's inside of us, how we're viewing the world, what our attitude is, and we can have a great technique and a crappy attitude and the technique is not going to work. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Like what, where does attitude play into things for you? I, well, I totally agree with you. It's everything because, uh, I think students are often very disappointed to take a lesson with me and find out that the secret is self-awareness and discipline. (laughs) You mean you don't have a saddle you can sell me? (laughs) And I love when people are like, but you make it look so easy. And like, and I'm like, you have no idea the suffering and the tears and the struggle and the terrible work that I have done to get here. Right. And the the fact that I monitor every step as much as I'm possible of my day and how I touch the door and how I talk to people and how I look at my dog. I mean, all day long, this is what I live, breathe and eat. And I'm not even one, one millionth of as good as I hope to be. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you have got to put in the self-awareness or it will never be 
it'll never be anything, especially the way that, that I work is it's not really teaching cues and, re, you know, release for the response. It's like, mm-hmm. it's communication step for step. So if you are not mentally available step for step, you will never have a, a truly soft horse. That's what I see it is you have mm-hmm. to be connected mentally. Mm-hmm. And I don't think most people are really used to that because they get in the arena and they're like, well, I, I can't pay attention this much. I'm exhausted. Keep right. on three steps. Right. <laughs> you can do it. You have right. to do it. Right. Yeah. It's, that's... Yeah. Mindset's everything. And it's right. not just like positivity outlook because I think that's, it's not just like, oh, you know, everything, everything happens for the best kind of outlook. It's really like monitoring your own self and digging up the dirt of what you do that is not helping without becoming self-deprecating because that's where people get lost off the path is they're like, Oh my gosh, my hands are horrible. I never knew how bad my hands were. I'm a terrible writer and I can't do this. And then they fall away. Right. And you've got to be able to dig up the dirt, look it over and, and not let yourself hit yourself on the head with it. Use it to evaluate and change and then keep going. That's so good. I love the, I love the way you're describing that as digging up the dirt. Um, and the thing that has been fascinating to me for years, and then in doing what I'm doing now, where I get to talk to a bunch of different people, mm-hmm. um, everybody's got the dirt. No mm-hmm. one, no one gets to go through this and not fall flat on their face over and over and over. And I think that's one of the things that I find so interesting with folks that start saying, you know, I'm a terrible writer. I, I'm never going to have hands like you, you know, those kinds of things is they start to get into this very human, normal mindset of I'm, I'm the only one. You yes. didn't have to go through this, Amy. Yes. You, you know, yes. you don't know what it's like to be as terrible as I am. I have a know? student that I love to pick at because she's a musician and she is more than capable of rhythmic, uh, you know, emotionally connected interaction. That's like her, her livelihood. Mm-hmm. So she gets into the arena with me and she's like, I just can't do this. I don't have the ability that you have. I don't have this. And she starts coming up with all these reasons. And I always tell her, her name is Lori, but I always say, Lori, I hate to break it to you, but there's nothing wrong with you. (laughs) I'm sorry to disappoint you. Now go and do the work (laughs) because rhythm is totally within the scope of your ability. I'm sorry to disappoint you. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just a change in environment. And it's hard. It is hard. Yes. It's very hard. Yeah, it is. And I, I watch her struggle and I know the struggle intimately and I still struggle. I still take lessons as often as possible. Um, and I let my students watch the dirty, awful, uncomfortable struggle of me suffering, like true suffering to right. this floor. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I let them watch because they need to know it. It is yeah. part of the, it, don't be afraid of discomfort. Yeah. Good for you. you. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'll admit, I hate it. I hate when my students watch and I feel like people, like things are going very poorly for me and I'm huh. really having a hard time. And there are a line of people and I know that half of them are like, ew, is she really a teacher? Or ew, is she really a this? And other ones are like, oh my gosh, it's not just me. And I, I have to let that go and just focus on my own struggle in the moment and get through it. Right. And I've lost, I've lost students over it. I know that people have seen it and left mm-hmm. um, because it's ugly. Right. But you've got to get comfortable with the ugly. Absolutely. And, and I, um, I feel so similar um, to you. I've, I've done very similar things through the years. And, um, and I've had to let go of the idea. Like if, if someone doesn't want to learn with me, doesn't want to learn with me anymore because they saw me struggle, they, that they had this expectation that I, that I was perfect. Mm -hmm. Um, they're not the right person and I'm not the right 
you know, teacher for them. And, right. um, you know, they can go and, and maybe they, they'll end up being one of those, those folks that go to from clinician to clinician, mm-hmm. because it, it, it makes it easy to hold on to that perfect idea. Yeah. But when you're with someone like you, who opens up the door and says, Hey, come, come watch me um, at a more advanced level, but I'm going to be struggling with things that what an incredible gift that is um, that you're, that you're giving people. Um, Well, I don't think everybody sees it as a gift though, because I think that the, the, the thought of a teacher is this elevated, like perfect human. And like one example is people always say like, I can't do that like you do because your legs are so long and you have like a perfect body for riding. Like Mm -hmm. I've been hearing that my whole life, Mm -hmm. which is so funny to me because all my instructors were like, you have this perfect body for riding and you don't use it. Your legs (laughs) are a mess. Your hands are a mess. Your arms are a mess. Like you're wasting this gift you've been giving. So it makes me laugh because I'm like, it's not benefiting me the way you think it is. Like I don't, I have long legs, but I've had to struggle to get control of them because I did all kinds of crazy things. Right. Like it was, I was born this miraculously good rider. Like, and also like every time I look at myself ride, I'm like, oh, that leg. Right. 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 And it's (laughs) such, it's such a perspective thing. Um, Absolutely. But the the teacher piece, I totally agree with you that that is a, a myth logical way of looking at teachers. I don't know if that's the greatest word for that. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like um, I'm fascinated with learning and I'm fascinated with teaching. And Mm -hmm. I feel like great teachers are great learners. Yeah. And if you don't, if you're not putting yourself in the trenches and continuing to keep it fresh and continuing to put yourself in the learner's shoes, you're Mm -hmm. not a great teacher. I don't think. Yeah. I don't think I'm naturally gifted writer at all. In fact, I think that for all the years of instruction that I've had, I have very little to show. (laughs) I have such a struggling learner, you know, and I have a lot of like social anxiety and I just, you know, it's all, there's a lot of things to cut down to get good at writing for me, Sure, but I am a very dedicated learner. And that's the thing that I think makes me good at teaching is that I can look at somebody see them struggle, know what that feels like and try my best to explain it to fit that person. Because I've been in that hot seat so much where I'm just like, somebody keeps saying the same thing to me over and over and it is not helping. Right. And now I just start to feel bad. And, you know, why do you keep saying it louder? I don't understand it. I don't know what I'm after. I feel like a blind person stumbling around in in the dark room. You know, it's just. Right. So I, I hope to make people feel very safe when they ride with me, but they do have to struggle. Yeah. You know, you know, you're never going to be berated. You're never going to be that. You're never going to be told you can't do this. You're never going to be anything more than encouraged, but it will be a struggle. Well, and that also makes me think about, you know, dealing with horses and that same, that similar idea that we were touching on with softness, that Mm -hmm. it's so easy to start to go, I don't ever want them to have trouble. I don't want to, you know, see them struggle and- Mm -hmm. Um, what, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, well, so my perspective on that is a little different because I do so many like rehabs. So the horses that I have are physically in pain or emotionally in just turmoil. Like they are just, it it never ceases to amaze me how badly a person can damage a horse's mind because the horses that I get, every time I think I've seen it all, I get somebody else doing something that I've just never seen before. I'm like, this horse is so 
uncomfortable in his own skin that he can't even think about. He can't even just live, you know, just eating and breathing is hard for him. So anyway, those horses are going to struggle. It is accepted. They already are struggling. Mm-hmm. And um, part of what makes it easy a little bit for me to work with their owners is that I'm like, that can't get possibly worse. Everything already has been bad and anything I do is going to alleviate that. But if I say a, say a, um, a physical rehab, um, horse is lame, really uncomfortable, everything hurts. If I don't push that horse out of his comfort zone, he will never change his posture or his muscle, t- muscle, muscle movement. So mm-hmm. if I look at this horse and he's taking these horrible short little steps, because it's my back hurts. Mm-hmm. And I say, we've relieved the cause of the pain. Now you have to really change your movement patterns or you will be trapped in that pain forever. Mm-hmm. And they might get frustrated. They might be a little uncomfortable. They might not want to. And that's where most people have a really hard time is they don't want to push the horse through that. Right. And I think that's very admirable because people not wanting to cause pain to their horse is what's going to save them from really bad instruction. Mm -hmm. So whenever I see that in a person, I I do really admire it because Mm -hmm. it's going to protect them from somebody who might want to do something horrible. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Right. But there's a fine line between pushing just enough to help the horse seek a different feeling in their body mm-hmm. and getting after them. And that's the line that we always have to walk is it's going to be uncomfortable. I will be there with you the whole time. I know that this is hard, but I promise you there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. If you can just open up your shoulders and change your walk, you're going to breathe. You're going to get endorphins. You're going to feel really good. And I'm going to be with it with you. Mm-hmm. And then you, you build trust with the horse because you prove to them over and over again that they can do something that's hard. They gain confidence in themselves gain confidence in your guidance and they start to feel really good. But if I don't push them, they resent me every day. They bought their body hurts. And so I actually do them an enormous disservice by not right. letting them get a little uncomfortable. Right. Right. And, and um, you know, you're not, you're looking at pushing them a little bit, you know, to make mm-hmm. those changes just a little bit at a time. Um, mm-hmm. But because it, like you said, there's a fine line between um, asking them to do something. And I, I can't remember exactly the words you used, but um, like going, I'm going to get after you if you don't. Yeah. 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 Um, there's also that fine line between how much to push. Right. Yeah. And you've had plenty of experience with it. So, you know, you're most likely, you know, pushing a little, observing the horse. How is mm-hmm. this? going. Um, and that, that I think is one of the things that's so hard for students is yeah. they, if you don't have that knowledge, you don't know how much to push. Yeah. You know? Well, I'm a professional mistake maker. So I've uh-huh. pushed horses over the line and under the line right. for a year. I mean, I just, yeah. Every time a training horse goes home, I'm like, man, I wish I could do that all over again. Cause right. As as we're wrapping up here, I see all these things that I could have done so much better, or you know, right. Uh, but I think I think the big difference though in that is that I'm not pushing the horse to make them do something that I want them to do. Mm-hmm. I'm pushing them to do something that is good for them to do because right. I know it'll benefit their body right. or their mind. And so that's the the intent there is extremely important because if I'm pushing a horse to get in the trailer, because hurry up, we got to get to the vet. I'm sick of this because I didn't prepare them, that's overloading the horse and it's for all the wrong reasons. But if I'm, the horse is scared of the trailer and I say, Hey, just give me 1% more effort. I know that if you put your foot in there and you see it, a lot of that fear is going to start to go away for you. Right. Don't push the horse. They're going to be scared to death. So you you actually can be more afraid by not pushing them a little bit. 
Right. That that's a really good example um, and helpful to hear you kind of talk that through. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that's really that's really good. Like a lot of horses who are really afraid of stuff, people love to go to the like abuse thing. Like I'm sure he was abused. I'm sure he was hit. I'm sure he had an accident in the trailer. More often, it's just repeated experiences where the horse left afraid. They started afraid and left afraid, and nothing was done to change it. Great. Right. So they're just habituating fear response. So you go to the trailer. I don't want to push my poor horse to go in the trailer. Uh, so he turns away from the trailer and gets away. And we think that we're being nice to him by letting him go where he wants to and relieve his own fear. But he's actually building this fear up. And it becomes this habit now where every time he's out the trailer, he's like, this is the horrible place. I've got to get away. Right. And it's actually a little bit of a dysfunctional way of being because he can never truly get relief. Mm-hmm. Because... If he gets away from, he can't get away from the person. This person's not going to let them go. Like it's not like the person's going to turn them out into the wild. You know, right. there's still there's still stress associated with the person, and the person is not guiding them to deal with those feelings in any way. So it becomes quite dysfunctional, and you have a horse who looks afraid of everything all the time. That's right. a situation where pushing that horse is essential, That's but so just good. enough to seek a different mind frame. Right, and like you said, doing it for them that it's not that, yes. because I want to get them to a no, show. No, it's because or... your mind is in such a state of discomfort that I cannot let you continue to feel that way in good conscience. Right. I have to help you deal with those feelings so that you can be happy and and feel good in your skin. Right, that's a key. That's a key. Yeah, right there. That's really good. So, um, I knew. I mean, like when we first started talking before I hit record, I told you that I have so many questions, and <laughs> um, and you know, when I get your other book, I'm gonna call you again. Okay. Um, but I, you know, I think we'll we'll start to wrap up. Um, but I want to make sure, like, if people want to connect with you, they want to learn more um, with you. How can they do that? How can they find me at Broken? Yeah. Yeah. How can they, how can they find you? How can people connect and learn more with you? Uh, Well, I try to put content on my Facebook every day. um, And that's Amy Skinner Horsemanship. I don't know what the website is. I think you just Google my name and you can find me. Okay, cool. (laughs) And then my website's amyskinnerhorsemanship.com. Okay. Um, I have a Patreon. I don't, Oh, know how cool. to tell you the link over zoom, but I put a lot of stuff on my Patreon. Okay. And that's a membership. Um, people pay a certain amount. Yeah. Yeah. It's, access. um, yeah, you get, it's, um, Patreon is its own entity basically. And I just upload into it. So they are billed by Patreon. Very cool. Um, and I'll make yep. sure to put all this in, I've got these little show note thingies. I'll put yeah. them in there and um, that's great. And then you're traveling. I, I live in Washington state and there oh, yeah. are quite a few folks here that are fans of yours. Oh, um, wow. And I heard you're coming to the area in yeah. the spring. Yeah. I can't remember the date exactly without looking at my calendar, but right. I will but be it's there. In, it's in March. I think it's in March. Yeah. I'll put, I'll yeah. put the dates. I'll find the dates and put them in there too. Cause I think there's a lot of folks that listen to this or watch this yeah. who will be interested in uh, checking you out. Um, yeah. So awesome. I really appreciate uh, chatting with you and I think you've shared some things that are going to get some brains going and, uh, and have been really helpful um, for people. To yeah. Consider. Sorry. You had to deal with me in the creepy dark. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. It wasn't too scary. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I think one of my favorite things on the planet is meeting someone who loves what they do, but is also driven to share what they've learned with 
the world. And Amy is definitely one of those people. It reminds me of a quote from Pablo Picasso that I'd like to close with. The meaning of life is to find your gift. The purpose in life is to give it away. So thank you for being here. And I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day.